This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we're going to three different front lines of climate action. Cape Grim in Tasmania is where they test the purest air in the world it's a benchmark for CO2 penetration of our atmosphere and currently they are finding 410.7 parts per million of CO2. Jessie Boylan is an artist and her conversation with Alison Hanley from Saltgrass Radio in Castlemaine is a deep dive into slow emergencies. If you think of the group 350.org, that number represents a safe penetration of carbon dioxide, but now we're up to 410.7 parts per million. It's a slow emergency. So how can an artist convey that to us? How is this CSIRO research at Cape Grim helpful for global climate action? And why is so much destruction of our biosphere sold to us as human advancement? It's a really profound conversation and it's part of a longer work that you can find on the Climactic Collective website. And thank you to Alison Hanley and Jessie Boylan for this sensitive work. After Cape Grim, James Perrin will take us to meet Bob Brown in the Takaina Forest. That's half a million acres of wild country that should be a World Heritage Site. As the Amazon is now emitting more carbon than it sequesters, we must not be bystanders. This is about world heritage and it's about the survival of our biosphere. You can find James Perrin's full podcast at The Overview Effect. Kiribati is our last front line for climate action. Sean Marsh interviews Anote Tong about how the global issue of climate change has been set back by its local politicization. Anote Tong's a, a great statesman, I think, and he says l- politicians have to focus on the local and the now. And unfortunately, gl- cl- the reactions to climate change have got to be focusing on the long emergency, the future, and the global. And local politicians don't seem to be up to it. This is a, a very great interview, very interesting to listen to. And if you want to see the video, go to Growing Concern on the Climactic Collective. Now we'll go to Cape Grim. Before we hear from Jessie Boylan, artist at Cape Grim and her atmospheric scientists, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country, home of the Jarjarung people. Jessie and I both live on Jara country and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Gr
Soap grass. We sat down to begin, with my dog Bobby lying in the sun, coming through her windows. I started by asking her how long she spent down in Tassie at Cape Grimm. Just five days walking around the outside of the Cape Grimm station. It's also called Kenanook in the local language. How do you describe yourself as an artist? I describe myself as a photography, video and sound artist who uses these mediums to explore environmental and social justice themes primarily, coming from a documentary photography background but moving much more into an installation kind of space now. And I work a lot in collaboration with others, which is really important to me as well. And you're currently studying a PhD. Where are you studying that? Yeah, I'm doing a PhD at RMIT in the School of Art. And my topic is around how to use art or how art can be part of a conversation to address slow climate emergencies and extinction and mass extinctions. And it's obviously that's a huge topic. So I'm trying to use one angle, which is to investigate this air monitoring station at Cape Grimm and to look at the kind of ways in which air and atmosphere, I can use those kind of aspects to talk about these bigger global issues so just focusing on kind of one obviously it's a huge topic that I've gone into but using one site as a kind of as a springboard to talk about bigger issues. reflecting on your topic it's the idea of this slow emergency is in comparison to say a natural disaster which is an immediate emergency Mm. but the slow emergency is climate change and it's what people are now calling the climate emergency I do think it's really hard to communicate to people who haven't taken the time to investigate it or think about it too much and maybe don't want to think about it Mm. it's really hard to communicate that this emergency is still an emergency even though it's really slow Slow emergencies are kind of, you know, there's this just kind of fairly new field of research around slow emergencies. These kind of forms of harm and damage which are continuously happening and they're kind of happening out of sight and they're kind of happening on a slow scale and of kind of pervasive yet subtle ways. And it's not just in climate change, like obviously things like family violence and intergenerational trauma and systemic racism, these things are also slow emergencies but, you know, my area is around slow climate emergencies, so we think about deforestation. Whilst they're happening, you might not see the gradual effects until there's a kind of a rupture, you know, like we kind of respond when there are ruptures like bushfires and earthquakes. But the things that are perpetually happening, pesticides seeping into riverbanks and the gradual build-up of what these things do to both people and, and land and country and animals. And so to try and visualise or communicate Something that is out of sight yet perpetually happening is quite a challenge. And for me, that's an exciting challenge. Generally with my work, I'm not trying to to go, you must think this or you must feel this and then you must have this response. Trying to have other avenues for people to come in and engage with something. Maybe it's affectively or through emotion. And then how they respond to that work is kind of what they take from it. Not necessarily prescribed by me or they have to have a certain outcome. It sounds like you have spent 
the majority of your adult life as an activist as well as making art and following your inclinations towards filmmaking and photography. And I feel like activism, and it's something I come up against in my interviews, a lot of activism is sort of very blunt tools where it's like trying to hit people over the head with knowledge and like if they just understood they'd get it or trying to say you're a bad person if you don't get it that sort of thing Mm. and I think that really can turn a lot of people off and make them just stop listening Mm. and some activism is very effective I'm not saying it's Mm. not but I think at the opposite extreme is sometimes art can be too subtle Mm. or only a small audience sees it so how do you feel about art as a means of Mm. communicating this stuff to people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that big question of being an artist in and, and, you know, having kind of political agenda or ideas that are about communicating particular issues, which is like, how do you know if it's effective or how do you know if it's reaching anyone? And I think that obviously there are measuring tools in which you can implement into your exhibition processes where you do community engagement processes and you don't show things only in white boxes and you try and find avenues to show works outside of those spaces or you actively invite people into those spaces or you make public shows or you do surveys that engage with people about how they respond to those particular works or have community who are affected by it engaged in those processes either from the beginning so that they know that that stuff is happening and they feel involved. I think you can only hope that you're another voice in the story and to have multiple voices telling these stories I think is a good thing because you have different sectors of society adding to this conversation and the more voices that are out there talking about these things I think obviously means the more people are going to see those things and you can only rely on feedback really and and trying to actively kind of engage with particular campaigns like in my previous work, kind of anti-nuclear movement or conversations that broaden out the scope of what the role of art is. Mm -hmm. And it can often play a role alongside a campaign to form another way of engaging with that story. And in this context, actually engaging scientists who might not necessarily otherwise see or engage with art. And so also going, how can we have a conversation through this process? And I don't normally engage with science on that kind of level. You know, I use it all the time in terms of my understanding of the world, but I don't go into the micro and macro detail of air particles and (laughs) what that means, you know? And so there's this conversation that's happening which allows both them into this conversation and me and and us. So exploring the Cape Grim Air Monitoring Station in northwest Tasmania, I'm using that as my main focal point, and also the CSIRO headquarters of Oceans and Atmosphere in Aspendale in Victoria, which is where a lot of the scientists who work at Cape Grim are often based. And they've got the air archive there, which we can talk about. Yeah, tell us what that is. (laughs) Well, they've been storing air and collecting and storing air from Cape Grim since 1976. So they've got this historical archive. That means every year that I've been alive, they've got a bottle of air, multiple bottles of air from that year. Yep, exactly. It's amazing. And back then it was, you know, in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere, it was 330 parts per million right and now we're at 410 or 415 and so there's like this concept of what was life like in 90 what was the air quality what was like what was human activity like in 1976 and for me it conjures up imagination it conjures up kind of where were we at you know and already back then people knew what burning fossil fuels would do and so yeah I'm using these two sites as 
a way to talk about air, this invisible substance, which is air, and how it affects all of us globally, you know, human and beyond human, and how we're connected by this substance which we need to survive, and yet perpetually, slowly damaging the thing that we also need to survive. And so in this kind of process of organisms supporting one another, we're doing this process where we're actually destroying something which supports us. And I'm trying to speak to these ideas. At the moment, it's observational. It's observing the side at Cape Grim, which is a really interesting side. It's it's also called Kenanook, which is in the local language there. Do you know what the local people were called? The Pirapa? But there's a few different clans that were there. So it's not just the Pirapa people, but a few different ones. And obviously lots of Tasmanian Aboriginal history. There's a lot being done now about renaming sites. And there's heaps around Cape Grim, around the sites there. So all the places, like there's a site there where the massacre was called Suicide Bay, which was in 1828, I think, 30 Aboriginal men were pushed off during the Black Wars. They called it Suicide Bay. Because of, because people got murdered there? Yeah, which is horrific. And, of course, they've got other names for those sites. Yeah. I got to meet a woman, traditional owner from that area, who took me out to Suicide Bay to welcome me there. I wanted to make sure that while I was there I wasn't filming things that I shouldn't do. And obviously it's a very dark and sad history that's caught up with the air monitoring station there so it's got these layers of history that are really interesting and tragic and awful but also incredibly stunning and beautiful and there's a lot of strength and stories about what people did living there like in this kind of rugged and and wild that gets very windy to the point where you can't open your car doors and everything's shaking cameras shaking and the seas get very intense and rough and yeah Stories of women crossing the bay to go and hunt mutton birds and swimming back again. and So it's a very interesting site. And so there are these like interweaving histories which are about this air that, you know, is considered baseline. It's supposed to be the cleanest air in the world. And the air that travels there has not touched land for some time. And so they can use it as a, as a kind of barometer or a baseline for global levels of CO2 and what background atmospheric levels are. So if they were trying to measure it somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere, you'd have massive land masses with multiple cities. So you'd get condensed air that's more indicative of that particular region. Yeah, you'd have higher levels of city-based pollution. And so from Cape Grim on the northwest of Tassie, you've got massive ocean. What is the next bit of land? Is it South America? Well, this goes down to... Antarctica, I guess. You look, yeah, like you're going sort of looking southwest over the Southern Ocean and also Bass Strait. So you're kind of at this point of the oceans meeting there. Yeah, right. But if you, I guess if you kept going, you would get over to South America and... Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately all the wind, like that's a long way. (laughs) It's a very long way. And it's so interesting to think about, you know, when you're there, like where is the wind, where is the air coming from? Yeah. You know, and what are they storing and who else has touched it? Yeah. And what has it seen along the way? You know, I love this kind of imagining of of those things. So a lot of the exploration is around this kind of invisibility of this substance as well. And sometimes we can see it or it, it forms in other ways through wind and particles and dust and things that you can kind of visualize. But ultimately it's invisible and it's all around us. So you went down for five days. I stayed just nearby 
I wasn't living on site because of COVID restrictions. I wasn't actually able to go inside this station. Oh, really? I was wandering around outside like a creep with all my recording gear and peeking in through the windows every so often and freaking the scientists out. (laughs) But no, they were very welcoming and I've obviously been planning this for more than a year to go down and, yeah, they would come out and and chat with me and we'd go on walks and they'd talk about what different things did and what those sounds were from that machine, that piece of equipment over there and what that radon thing did. And so they would come out and talk to me, but I wasn't actually able to go inside. But I will revisit Cape Grim over the next three years, multiple, multiple times. But I did go also to Aspendale, which is where they have a lot of similar measuring and analysis kind of equipment there. Yeah. You often hear people talking about parts per million or how many tonnes of carbon dioxide. And to me, a gas doesn't have a weight. So I'm like, how can you have a tonne of carbon dioxide? Like, how does that even mean? Yeah. Your visuals that you're using in your piece, there's there's the landscape, which mm. is quite amazingly sparse and barren with just grass and, and sort of steep, steep hills. And But then you've also got these sort of bits of chrome and metal and gauges and scientific equipment and things like that, which mm. is quite interesting because it's, like the landscape almost could be primordial and then you've got the highest level of human technology. It's so quite quite antiquated as well. Some of that technology is very bespoke and like, you know, 1980s and stuff in there sure. as well. So yeah. Little graph. Yeah. Like yeah. Lines going up and down. Yeah. And little squiggles. And- to do that next to each other is like these two things that are constantly working together, you know, out of sight, invisibly kind of operating together to form this data collection, history, this knowledge of our action here on Earth. You know, I think there's this kind of beauty in both of those things that are kind of operating simultaneously to, to document, but also influence. Like the scientists that work here, they they feed into UN Convention on Climate Change and systems and policies, and they feed back Australia's contribution to greenhouse gases back to the UN every year. And so it's this kind of, not just a collection process, but it's it's about making change and influencing the way we do things. But I do, you know, I love there's this kind of like layers of human, machine, an environment like animals, plants, birds, this interaction between all of these these different things that are constantly working, constantly engaging and obviously as well with the history and the layers of side of colonization of of massacre and yeah, it, it kind of speaks it speaks to our times, I think, in terms of when did the Anthropocene begin, you know, some people say it's the beginning of colonization, you know. In Australia. Well not or just anywhere. in Australia. Yeah. yeah. There's all sorts of theories about when we started going wrong as a species. Mm. <laughs> is it when we started farming and yeah. trying to control the land? Is mm. it when we invented language and became cerebral instead of felt? Mm. Is it, you know, and I often think about, like, this is off topic, but <laughs> I often think about how every time humanity has done something, it's in the name of advancement. Mm. And we've always thought we're making our lives better or the world better. Mm. But cumulatively, we've gotten mm. to this point of mm. mass destruction mm. because of all of our advancements. Mm. And it's like, how far back do you go to yeah. stop that? Like, yeah. if we had a time machine, yeah. would we, would we like, be like Zeus and say humans shouldn't have fire? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we can't even imagine, really, what life would be like no. now, knowing what we know and having what we have. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine, yeah. isn't it? There's quite a lot of layers of sounds and I've also 
been given access to marine recordings so from other scientists who've done like whale recordings and seal recordings and all these other kind of marine animal recordings from big voyages and they've and they've been extremely generous with their recordings so some of those sounds are also part of this big rich layered like soundscape and the waves crashing. Waves crashing and also we've got this geophone. You can put it in the earth and it records infrasonic sound and sounds that kind of come out as felt rather than heard. And yeah, so there's quite a lot of sounds going on and it's quite it's a, it's a lot of subtlety in it, which hopefully will be able to be heard or felt. to have conversation with scientists who've been doing this work for a long time it's really kind of subtle way care for the earth and care for all of us in this really beautiful but hidden way and you know the land is is doing that constantly as well and I'm kind of really interested in just different ways of 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 feeding back these kind of processes to have this bigger conversation that we're talking about here and the work will evolve in, in many different ways through other other forms, not just video and sound. It'll be lots of different things, and I think that it's the, the kind of process of research which will help me know that. But I guess the big questions are around, I guess, what we talked about at the beginning, around the role of art in this conversation and how how to use it as a, as a place of discovery, of, of understanding, of, of access you know access into these ideas and and not shutting people out from them and how that how it forms one part of a bigger story that was jessie boylan talking about her artwork for the castlemaine state festival called the smallest measure her work at cape grin will continue and you can follow her on her website the link of which is in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. My name is Alison Hanley, and that is all we have for this episode of Saltgrass. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. still in Tasmania, but now here's James Perrin talking to Bob Brown for the overview effect. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on Tekina land, and I'd like to pay respects to the Tekina people and all First Nations people of Lutrawina, which is just a beautiful place. I've been here in Tassie for the last five days. I was running in the Tekina Ultramarathon. This is a 51-kilometre trail through the pristine Tarkine rainforest, the largest temperate rainforest in Australia, and it was amazing. Brutal. The run was absolutely brutal. The course was super technical, lots of steep hills, lots of over and unders of fallen trees, bush bashing, heaps of rocks, heaps of mud, 
four-wheel drive tracks we had to run through, river crossings. It was something else. But, oh my gosh, it was so incredible, and I'm so grateful to have experienced it. And I highly recommend anyone listening to come and do the run next year. Not just because of the spectacular running experience, though, because this was all for a really special cause. We were running to raise awareness and funds for the Bob Brown Foundation to protect this amazing place, which is every day under threat of logging and mining. Someone to set the scene. Someone to tell us about how special the Tarkan is and to paint the picture of the destructive societal mentality that is leading to these sorts of activities in the first place. He's someone who has fought many environmental campaigns over the last few decades. He is really the grandfather of the environmental movement in Australia. He led the successful blockade in the Franklin River in the 80s. He helped establish both the Wilderness Society and Bush Heritage Australia. He co-founded the world's first Greens political party, then held seats in various state and federal houses. He really needs no other introduction. I'm talking about a very special human, none other than the man himself, Dr. Bob Brown. Thank you, James. I've been uh, very fortunate. You know, life can be tough at times, but in my case, it's got better as it's gone on, and I've never been happier. Here I am at 76, and being here um, at Waratah in the heart of the Tarkine in remote Tasmania, with 100 people going to run marathons tomorrow through that forest to help save it, that's just so um, uplifting and fantastic. Mm. And save it, we will. Not yet, but yep. we will. We'll get there. So the, the, the podcast, the premise of my show, is called The Overview Effect, which is the name given to this experience that astronauts have, where they first shoot up into space... And from space, they look back on our Earth and they see our world as a whole and without any borders, without you know everything interconnected. And they describe it as this profound sense of connection to nature and they have this paradigm shift and a very emotional sense of connection. And many of them come back to Earth changed permanently. Yes. And I wanted to ask you if you've had a similar experience or moment that has really shaped your view of our world. Well, look, I haven't been into space, uh, and I was a young medical intern at uh, the Canberra Hospital in 1969 when uh, the people first trod on the moon, and I remember coming away from intensive care or wherever and had a break and, and watched part of that. But to me, this planet's been fascinating ever since I can remember and mm. the, the fact that it is just the, one, the only one in the universe, so far as we yet know, that has life and love and laughter. And, and this uh, extraordinary... You know, it, it fascinates me that here we are talking to each other and we're intelligent beings. And that potential was wrapped in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. And, mm. and we know that because here we are doing it. <laughs> uh, and... I'm just uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, the the sheer uh, inability of us to comprehend what it is, but then uh, the the fascination with learning more. And as we go, we are learning more, 
and I want this to go on, you know, this human joyride in the universe, which is really a way of the universe thinking about itself to go on into mm. the future. And, and um, basically why I've become, uh, from being a young doctor to becoming a environmentalist, because uh, it, uh, the health of the biosphere, which sustains us as individuals and as this now massive mammal herd of 8.5, no, 8 billion, mm. uh, it'll go on to maybe 11 billion mm. this century, um, consuming the planet beyond its ability already to replenish. Uh, it's, it's, it is fascinating to me, and yet I don't run into anybody, well, hardly anybody, uh, in my lifetime who doesn't want it to go well. Mm. But we're making a mess of it. And so that idea of the looking back at this one unified planet, uh, it's the only great concept we can have of ourselves. And we either sink or we swim. You know, we'll go to disaster, uh, all of us, or we'll mm. make it into the future. And I'm very much a Unitarian in that sense that we're all in this together and uh, the divisions which we set in our society are taking nearly all our time and, and yes. effort at the moment. Yes. Um, how to get beyond that without a catastrophe prompting us into it or making things worse is, is the fascinating question of the moment. Mm. I love how you talked about your reflection as the universe thinking about itself I just that's a beautiful way of putting it. I, I do want to ask you specifically about the Tekina. I wonder if you can quickly just paint the picture for us as to what makes it so special and what are the issues that your foundation and that everyone here are fighting against to try to protect it. Yes, James. Well, Tekina, uh, the Tarkine, is a half million hectares of wild country in the northwest corner of Tasmania. So if you can visualise the heart-shaped island of Tasmania, the smallest state in Australia, but off to the south. Um, Tarkina is up in that northwest corner. It's 7% of Tasmania. And it's set uh, in quite extraordinary... Uh, it, it's in quite extraordinary natural condition, but it's under all sorts of threats. It's got one of the richest Aboriginal heritages. The Aboriginal people here, as elsewhere, were dispossessed forcibly the Tarkina people and and where we are we're inland from the coast uh, the Tomagini people were dispossessed within 30 years of the Europeans arriving here even though mm. they were cordial towards the European and they were they were a big robust people uh, mm. you know the warriors that encountered the first Europeans to land on the Tarkine coast here were six feet tall and um Mm. And yet they uh, were accommodating, but that's not how things turned mm. out. So here we are back here with two th missions. One is to protect Tarkina, which is, includes the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia. It's as big as the Daintree Tropical Rainforest up there in Queensland, which has got world heritage wow. status. And this one doesn't but should have. And mm. it's full. That forest is full. It's, it's uh, full of wildlife and a lot of it's extraordinarily rare for example Astacopsis guldi which is a freshwater crayfish uh, in the streams of the Tarkine flowing to the west coast and north coast of Tasmania it's the largest 
invertebrate, that means species without a backbone, in any rivers in the world. It's the largest freshwater crayfish in the world. Now, if it was in the Nile or the Amazon or the Mississippi, we'd all know about it. Yeah. But it's here. And these creatures grow to a metre in length and six kilograms in weight, and they're fabulous. Wow. Uh, Blue-shelled lobsters, if you like, and they're being grossly threatened by mining and logging because they need the little pebbles. Uh, It takes them seven years to get out of infancy, and they hide in the little pebbles. Well, you put mud into that river and it clogs up the pebbles. They've got nowhere to go, and they get eaten by everything. Mm. So uh, it's a a big task we've got here, and there's Tasmanian devils, there's quolls, both tiger quolls and and eastern native quolls, there's a giant wedge-tail, Tasmanian wedge-tail eagle, which has been recorded with wingspan. It's bigger than the mainland one. Wingspan's up to three metres across. Wow. So hold both your arms out, and then it's another arm's length again. Wow. Uh, the only pure white raptor that is eagle-like bird on earth, which is the white goshawk, it's found yeah. elsewhere in Tasmania, but this is its stronghold. Mm. Uh, masked owls headed for extinction. The swift parrots come through. Uh, he, and, and indeed, the rarest uh, parrot that we have, the other migratory parrot to Tasmania, and the, the two of the only the only migratory parrots in the world come between the mainland and Tasmania, is the orange-bellied parrot, and it uses the Tarkine as a mid-feeding ground on its way down to the southwest of Tasmania each year, and it's down to less than a hundred. In uh, wow. and um, we're trying very hard to save that. Uh, the so many good scientists are. So here we've got a cornucopia of nature, stunningly beautiful, waterfalls, lovely little rivers, magnificent ferneries. In At this time of the year, autumn, the, we're about to see after the next rainfall one of the magnif- most magnificent display of fungi, all colours <laughs> and shapes and sizes on the forest floor and so on. Mm. And uh, it's just wonderful to be part of saying to the miners who have mining leases over 95% of it and the loggers who are flattening and incinerating, and I mean bombing with napalm, these forests, uh, so that they won't grow back but they can put in their single species. Being able to stand up to that in our time is a great privilege because other people won't be able to come back and undo that Mm. if we don't protect it. So we want two things. Firstly, to protect it, it should be added to the World Heritage Area because Cradle Mountain, which is in the World Heritage Area, is just east of here. And secondly, is to return it to the Aboriginal community uh, in in Tasmania. It's public land. Nobody in, Nobody's private land is being threatened. Mm. And um, we're on our way. Mm. What do you see as the... I guess we're here, let's say all of that happens... Let's say we, we are able to World Heritage protect Tekina and hand it back to Aboriginal custodianship. That's one example of one cause that we could potentially fight and protect. But I keep coming back to what I read in Optimism, your memoir recently, your chapter about Big M materialism. You know, that, that religion, the new yes. religion. Yes, and absolutely. Is that, that seems to be the cause of all of these symptoms, if mm. I were to speak in a medical term. Mm. And how do, we, how do we address that? Because I feel like that, if we get to the core of that and change 
our societal mentality, all of these things like deforestation, climate change, etc., will be almost superfluous. Well, first of all, we have to understand the situation we're in, which is that um, our 8 billion people are already using 170% of the Earth's living renewable resources. That is, we're using nearly double what the what the earth can supply or does supply which is available and that means every morning we wake up to fewer forests fewer fisheries fewer fellow species more mouths to feed but less land to grow food and certainly less wilderness and and wild wildness and it's up to us to decide whether and that's all fostered by a growth economy and you know um you run into a non-green politician who says we've got to do something about uh, population, you're running into a rarity. Instead of that, in this century, in this last 20 years, we've had a federal government advocating bonuses for people. And and there's a big worry at the moment that because immigration's fallen due to COVID, that we've got to produce more Australians. There's going to be some incentive to have people make more babies. Now, that's to feed... That's not so that you can love and nurture little ones, that's to feed a growth economy Mm. so that it will be more people to consume. That's why China's recently reversed its its one uh, baby per couple policy to open it up to two or more because uh, materialism, capital M materialism, that is consuming more stuff, is the religion of the age. It's It's global. And it's subservient to the great God, capital G, growth. And mm-hmm. I don't know of a government yet on the planet that isn't at the, co- at the core of its economic policy, and this is what governments stand or fall on, wanting growth. So let's have a 3% growth in the consumption of the planet. Already we're consuming twice its living resources it can replace per annum. And the rest of the world catch up with us in Australia at our consumption rate and you are going to see a 300% growth on what we're consuming now by the end of this century. That's a worse problem than the actual numbers of people. Mm. Uh, And your question was how do we turn this around? Well, by talking about it first Mm. up, but by not voting for the parties that are making the problem worse. Mm. At the last national election in Australia, 90% of people voted for parties that want more coal mines, like the Adani mine, more gas fracking, that's methane into the atmosphere, more oil wells, uh, and uh, more logging of forests, which the United Nations tells us, and it's as plain as the the nose in front of our faces, is the best way of keeping carbon from going into the atmosphere is to keep the great old forests instead of burning them and and having that all go up into the atmosphere. Well, we as a nation, 90% voted for more destruction, Mm. not saving. So uh, there's something fundamentally wrong there. One of the problems, of course, is that advertising tells us to get more stuff. And we've got got media, uh, which is uh, largely, not all, but largely, uh, climate sceptic has been... Uh, uh, and uh, sees environmentalists as the corporations uh, who are making the biggest mess of the planet want them to see us as um, in some way or other obstructive. Mm. Whereas, in fact, we're not. We're opening the door to a new future. 
Yes. And it's them who have set their, uh, you know, they've set their all in the way of security for today's kids. Current projections, today's children now at school, by the time they're my age, will have at least 20% of their gross national income just dealing with the impacts of climate change. They're going to be poorer, they're going to be unhealthier, and they're going to be far more secure, insecure. Now, people don't want that, mm. but people vote for it. And there's the dilemma. And I, I don't, I'm not one of those who says it's all the politicians' fault. Uh, we the people run a democracy yeah. and we've got to vote differently and we've got to put the environment up the ladder of importance instead of just what's going to be the best tax break or the biggest handout by which of the big part, old big parties supporting more coal mines is going to give us at the next election. I note just last week I read in one of the murder newspapers that the Christian Democrats Angela Merkel's party is going down, down, down in the polls. Uh, in two state elections last week, and um, gee, oh, that's interesting. So I decided as there was nothing in the newspaper, well, somebody must be going up in the polls, I'd go and look elsewhere. It's the Greens. They mm. won state government in one of those uh, very highly populated German states, and they're in balance of power in the other. Not re deliberately cut out of the reporting. And, wow. you, and you see um, the media is the message, as Marshall McLuhan put it, and uh, we, we have to demand a greater honesty in that portrayal and uh, in these days of, um, you know, so much um, information going through the uh, cyberspace uh, and no control on it, really. It, it's, it's a very difficult world we live in. But people are good-hearted individuals want the best outcome for the, themselves and their children and we're uh, badly in need of leaders who are going to come forward and, and I think uh, Jacinta Ardern for example in, in New Zealand is showing a lot of the thoughtfulness that's missing elsewhere in mm. the world run by Putin and um, Donald Trump's of the, uh, you know, yeah. uh, of the world but it's in the hands of we the people and it starts with how we vote and then it starts, it moves next to what we support and what we tell our politicians how we want. And on, high on my agenda there is, well, start by protecting the Tarkine. Mm. Wonderful. Bob, thank you so much again, not just for your time, but again, from the absolute depths of my heart for a lifetime of work it, it's massively inspired me and i'm just so grateful for everything you've done and that i've had the chance to sit here and talk to you about well, it today. thank you james and um from where i sit you know life's a moving footway and i'm about to step off at the other end we don't know when but that'll come up but it's wonderful to see bright-eyed young people concerned about the future and thinking about how we can change this and get ourselves back on track, stepping on to the start of that footway. So <laughs> that, that makes me uh, feel optimistic, uh, very carefully, but very determinedly optimistic about the future. Mm. Thank you. Wonderful, Bob. Thanks so much. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, 
slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Hey and welcome to Growing Concern. My name's Sean Marsh. I'm in Sydney and it's hot. Like run between shadowy doorways from the sun kind of hot. It's early, it's busy and I'm travelling into Darlinghurst from Bondi, where I was living at the time. I'm about to meet and interview Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, usually pronounced incorrectly as Kiribati. The Republic of Kiribati. That was Anote with the correct pronunciation. I'm nervous as hell, but also incredibly excited. It's not often you get to meet a political figure, and even rarer still, one who's dedicating their entire lives to fighting climate change. For context, this interview was the brainchild of Jared Troutbeck, founder of Climates, a non-profit organisation that empowers Pacific Island nations to work together towards a sustainable future in the face of climate change. They do excellent work. Jared's recently stepped away from Climates to, in his own words, decolonise the organisation. Uh, I'm currently writing a future episode to expand on what decolonization is all about and why it's important. Jared organized the place, the time, the audiovisual equipment, the post editing, everything for this uh, interview. And this simply wouldn't have happened without him and the Climates team. We were meeting at a place called The Vault. Picture a large James Bond style Fort Knox doorway, and you'd be pretty close. Jared, always the detailed and conscientious fella, had decked out the room in native plants and flowers from both Australia and the Pacific Islands. If you want to see it, I've put a link to the video in the description. So anyway, here I am, shaking like a leaf, and Anote walks in. The man exudes a calming gravitas. It's immediately obvious to me how he once led a nation, and I guess in some ways he still does. Uh, Anote has been on a TED talk expressing concern that his island nation would, will be gone if we don't act. Uh, there's a documentary on his fight against climate change called Anote's Ark. He's the recipient of a peace prize and he's even given speeches at numerous climate summits demanding actions, not promises. I have a lot of questions. Here's what went down. Anote, thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you, and um, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, I think for those who aren't aware of you and um, what you're all about and currently the, the, the travels that you're on at the moment, could you give us a backstory of you and your history? Okay, well, I, I was um, um, in office as president of the Republic of Kiribati from 2003 to uh, 2016. And during the period of my presidency, one of the issues uh, really that uh, was, uh, uh, I gave priority to was the, the fight against what was happening on climate change. Why that was necessary is because of the, our extreme vulnerability 
of the countries like mine, like Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, the very low-lying atoll nations, which are given the projections of what's happening on climate change, are really facing an existential threat from climate change. And now, since retiring in 2016, I, I continue my advocacy on climate change and traveling uh, different parts of the world, uh, constantly trying to communicate that message that it, this is important, it's no longer speculation, and that uh, for, for people in countries like mine, uh, it is a matter of uh, how, whether we will have a future. Our future generations, uh, where will they go when all of this comes down? While we're talking about politics and your role as uh, the president of Kiribati, um, why no longer politics? I think one of the things that I've really learned from my own experience while in office and also since has been the, the, the politicization of an issue like climate change, which is global in, in nature. Whereas in politics, it's about national level politics. And I've always believed that this has been the greatest obstacle to addressing the challenge of climate change because every time we go to the United Nations Conference on, the, on, the, on climate change, we come as people representing the interests of our countries. And we negotiate against each other. But nature is not going to negotiate at the end of all of this. And so my greatest disappointment has been uh, the politicization of climate change. I've had experience in, here in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, where there's been a time when climate change was the top of the agenda. And with the change in government, it, it's the whole policy to rest. We can play politics with climate change. Climate change will continue to march relentlessly forward, uh, regardless of what party policies we put forward. And so, but the only thing that would, uh, it would affect is whether or not we survive this catastrophe. Do you think that uh, because it's out of sight, out of mind, people find it hard to connect with it? Is that what it is? I think that's, that's really much of the story. Mm. I think we don't, um, I believe, that not all of us relate to what's happening until it hits us hard mm. and painful. Mm. And so, but I think what is important is um, we've got, um, many, most people are self-centered to a really large extent. And if, uh, if, if something happens next to them, then they just see it but not relate to it. Okay, what is happening in our part of the world, uh, here in Australia, they don't think it has any relevance. But if the, the bushfires start coming and people lose their homes and their lives, I, I can assure you, it's relevant to those people. If the farmers continue to have these droughts, I assure you, climate change is relevant. And so it's that creeping effect until one day when you thought you're not on the front line, but you're how many rows back, then you become on the front line. Mm. Then you realize that it is relevant, but by then it may be too late. Yeah, I, I feel like that would give you perspective, but I agree. At that point, it's too late to make the decision Absolutely. to tackle it. And we talked about this before, um, and uh, sort of talking about how the majority of Australians believe that climate change is a thing large majority and, and the similar majority want to do something about it. Why do you think it's just not getting enough traction? Why do you think people get swept up in the minutiae of day-to-day -day life rather than the bigger picture? Well, it's, uh, I think it goes back to what I said earlier because it's being politicised, whatever the reason is. But I think I heard, I heard um, the, the, the American economist, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, talk about this just a couple of nights ago, I think, and he was very blunt. 
I think he's saying it's nonsense. You know, people are not doing the right thing. And I think he's even accusing politicians, I don't know whether in Australia or in the United States, or maybe both, of being corrupt and, and taking, um, what, maybe taking bribes from, from uh, the, the, the energy companies. Uh, that's a very straight talk, which he said, and I, I don't have sufficient information to make that kind of a comment, but he's saying that, that, may, that maybe explains why what makes sense is not making sense. Okay, and um, because we have political leaders, and I've come to the conclusion that sometimes political leaders are not the best representatives of the people's views. I believe that our democratic process of government has become undermined by the way we do it these days. We've learned to undermine it. So when it was first put into place, it was wonderful because it gave power to the people. I don't think it's doing that anymore. It's giving, now it's giving power to the ones that already have power, uh, uh, especially resources to swing decisions their way. And if that is the case, that is disappointing. And if that is the case, it's bad for the people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think what we'll do is we'll leave it on one more question because I, I think that the, um, the most important thing added today is giving people tangible solutions and ideas that they can then use in their community because I think that's part of the issue where there's global climate change is a massive deal and we've seen personal and psychological disconnection with the severity of it. So um, there's a recent coal mine that was politically approved in New South Wales which I was stumped by. I thought that was a done deal. We're not doing that anymore. Apparently we are. Um, The message we're getting is that it's a done deal and uh, the citizens of Australia and obviously the rest of the world, they, they, they sort of just buy into that. What would you say to them? Well, I, um, I think my views on that, on that are very clear because I, I made a call for a global moratorium on the opening of new coal mines, recognising then that um, on the basis of advice, scientific advice, that coal is the worst polluter. You know, not only does it... Have, uh, does it, have, does it have dirty carbon dioxide? But it's, uh, you know, the, 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 it also uh, contributes to the acidification of the oceans, of the oceans which damages the, 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 the reefs. And I, and I have no doubt that, that uh, what's happening will damage the reefs, in, especially the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, which is an interesting thing because it's so close to home. It's something we can see. Well, you're part of it. If you're, if, you're, if you're allowing that to happen, then you are making that happen. Mm-hmm. You are yeah. killing your Great Barrier Reef. But coal, and I think my, what are my views on coal have been really endorsed by the, 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 the latest report of the IPCC. And so... The question is, why do we continue to go ahead and do these things? We're being misled in the direction which really takes us to our own destruction. Why do we do this? I think um, the economist Jeffrey Sachs has a reason for doing that because I don't believe that reflects the will of the people. And the question really is, why do we continue to do what may not reflect the views of the people? And I think this is important because if the leadership is not representing the views of the people, I think it's about time you people do something about it. I'm often asked, you know, what do you think, I said, about what the the, the government is doing? I said, come on, don't be so naive. Mm -hmm. You put the government there. Mm -hmm. And so take responsibility for it. Uh Whatever it does, Mm -hmm. you are responsible. Yeah, that's true. 
So I would say from a, like a, a local perspective, um, the, the, the coal mines, those, the infrastructure involved in fossil fuels and stuff is backed by money. Yes. So the most powerful thing that Australians and global citizens can do is to know that your money is being used for those things, find out if it's being used for those things and move it out. Because mm-hmm. that is probably the simplest, most effective impact you can have. So, um, yeah, I, I hope that perhaps that gives people like an understanding of you know, one small step you can take for a big impact. Well, I'm, I think it's, it's exactly the same kind of argument that uh, took a long time for the, um, for the world to acknowledge, and that was the tobacco industry. Okay, we know tobacco was killing people. Mm-hmm. Yet even today, we, we continue um, not to legislate against it. And likewise, coal is very damaging to people's health, mm-hmm. to the, um, the, the planet. Yet, for some reason, we'll continue to allow it to go on. I mean, and this is the argument that I sometimes bring forward, that um, you know, we, we don't have a problem. If you here in Australia can, can keep your emissions within your borders, come on, burn as much coal as you like. But unfortunately, you don't do that. It's impossible. So, yeah. so we have the right to question what you're doing with our part of the world. You're right next door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I admire the drive that you've got, I, and I know that you've been doing this for quite some time, and I hope you continue to do it for even longer, <laughs> if you can sustain it. I think it's important to carry on this, and I think it's important for everybody to understand that um, we all have a role in this. Yeah. And the... And, uh, and uh, what I, I was in Germany uh, sometime uh, last year. They said, what, when, what is it we can do? Or everything. Don't ever for one moment think that what you do here does not have an impact for us in our part of the world, because it certainly does. And so it, it is important that here in Australia, even if you, we are getting flooded and you hear about it and you don't feel anything, understand that you have contributed to that. And that is the moral question, the moral issue that I've always been uh, bringing forward. Climate change is the greatest, greatest moral challenge for humanity. And take action. Right. Take action and uh, don't ever believe that you're not part of it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you, Anathe Tong, for coming in today. We really, really, really appreciate it. Very welcome. And I, I wish you and I ask all of you to do your part. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show at 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. I'd like to thank Michaela and Raoul for getting this show out to our huge audience and hope if you liked it, you will go to the 3CR website and download the podcast and send it to someone influential. Thank you to the Climactic Collective who have encouraged me to go on. We've showcased three of their members tonight and many thanks to them for letting me broadcast their work. Alison Hanley produces Saltgrass Radio up in Castlemaine and her guest was the artist Jessie Boylan. James Perrin produces The Overview Effect and his guest was Dr Bob Brown. Sean Marsh's show is called Growing Concern and he spoke to Kiribati statesman Anote Tong. For action this week, you might like to support the Bob Brown Foundation or Climates. There's also 350.org who are in solidarity with the Pacific. We are keen to spread the word about your climate action. 
So please leave us a message at 3CR if you'd like to speak on air or for us to advertise what you're doing. The number is 3 9419 I'll leave you with these words by the poet Rumi. Stop. Take a breath. For you are drunk and we are at the edge of the roof. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. <laughs>